0: Hello and welcome to Whistlestop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. It was only the halftime break at the Kennedy-Khrushchev Vienna Summit in June of 1961, but it was already clear the Team USA was losing. Kennedy, in his fumbling responses to the Soviet premier, had appeared weak to his opponent, who noted that Kennedy was young enough to be his son. Indeed, the 44-year-old president had been born in the same year as Khrushchev's eldest son. This man is very inexperienced, even immature, Khrushchev told his interpreter. Compared to him, Eisenhower is a man of intelligence and vision. This is from Fred Kemp's indispensable Berlin 61. You'll remember, of course, that Khrushchev had a very low opinion of Eisenhower going into the meeting, and so in comparison to Kennedy. So for him after the first day to put Eisenhower back on the top of the heap is quite a downgrade. For Kennedy. Anyway, welcome to the third and final whistle stop on President Kennedy's meeting with the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. It is a rule of the whistle stop priory that a string of episodes cannot last longer than the thing that they are describing. So we are desperately going to try to stop things here at just three episodes on Kennedy and Khrushchev. Why have we subjected you to three episodes anyway? Well, because there's so much to discover, and our researchers, Brian Rosenwald and Elizabeth Hinson, have put so much before me, I feel a personal debt to them for doing all of the excavating. When you have diamonds brought before you, it's really not polite in the least to cast them aside or use them to hold up the wobbly table at bar 91 which is where I typed that sentence. You must put them in their best use, and so here is an attempt to do that. And even so, not all the gems can fit into the story. I had to tell the story of Soviet spy Georgi Bolshakov uh, as my cocktail chatter in our live Philadelphia gabfest a couple of weeks ago, because my cup so runneth over. Anyway, why are we here? What's this all about? What's cooking? Well, the story of Kennedy in Vienna is the story of how summits can change the course of U.S. and world history. We think of them as discrete moments, but even summits, where very little happen in the narrow boundaries of the summit, can make very big things happen later in history. Something we know is on Kennedy's mind, this ripple effect, because his undergraduate thesis was about Chamberlain's negotiations with Hitler in the run-up to World War II. Once again, we'll throw it to Cambridge professor David Reynolds and his BBC documentary on Vienna of 61, ...to add a little more symphonic mood music. The result was a massive clash of personalities played out over two days. It created profound misunderstandings. And worse, misguided policies, pushing the world to the brink of nuclear destruction over Cuba and dragging America into a war in Vietnam that almost tore the country apart. So what we learn from Vienna 61 is that if we study history, we get a notion for why these meetings are so important, even if nothing comes out of them. They cause leaders to overreact in response to whatever happened in the summit, either because they think they've been bested in the meeting by their interlocutor or they want to show and they want to show they're rough and tough if they, because they didn't in the moment. Or a leader might get adventuresome if they judge the leader they've just left is weak and can be bested. Here's how Kennedy thought about the summit and why he had to hold it in a conversation he had with the Washington Post before he met Khrushchev. He said these personal moments would provide the context for his future decisions. Here he is. This is Kennedy. Uh, Or this is the Post quoting Kennedy. He added, it's important to talk to the communists because in the final analysis, heavy decisions rest constitutionally upon the president of the United States. He must, under some conditions, make the final judgment himself. And if my judgment may be more lucid, maybe based more on reality as a result of this exchange, then I think the trip may be useful. So that gives us another lens through which to view our current events. What happened between President Donald Trump and President Vladimir Putin will cause each to calculate and miscalculate afterwards. I'm speaking, of course, about their summit in Helsinki in July of 2018. President Donald Trump issued an all-caps rebuke of the Iranians a week after the Helsinki meeting with Vladimir Putin. And the charge from some of his critics and even some of his allies was that in that all-caps tweet and show of strength with the Iranians, he was trying to show strength and toughness after looking weak with Vladimir Putin. It had been the consensus conclusion from friends and allies alike, or at least members of the same party, that the president had looked weak with Vladimir Putin. Was this assessment of his bellicosity towards Iran and its connection to the performance in Helsinki, was it a, an accurate judgment? Was it a right judgment? It's possible. We know from studying Khrushchev and Kennedy that it's certainly possible when things go wrong that a president can try to send a, a corrective signal. The second day of the Kennedy Khrushchev. Summit in Vienna of 1961 started very differently for the two leaders. The Kennedys had listened to the Vienna Boys' Choir and had taken mass in St. Stephen's Cathedral. The First Lady's eyes had welled up with tears as she knelt to pray, and when they emerged, they were cheered by a throng of well-wishers. At about the same time, a much smaller crowd, and less enthusiastic, watched as the leader of The Soviet Union laid a wreath at the Heroes Monument of the Red Army in Vienna, which was built to commemorate the 17,000 Soviet soldiers who were killed in action during the Vienna offensive in World War II. The second day of meetings were scheduled for the Russian embassy or scheduled to take place at the Russian embassy. And here's the way Kemp puts it in his book, Berlin 61. Standing before the Soviet embassy, Nikita Khrushchev shifted from side to side like a boxer, eager to come back out of his corner after having won the opening rounds. A wide grin revealed the gap in his front teeth as he thrust out his small, plump hand to greet Kennedy. I greet you on a small piece of Soviet territory, said Khrushchev to Kennedy. He then threw out a Russian proverb, Sometimes we drink out of a small glass, but we speak with great feelings. Kennedy would soon learn how great Khrushchev's feelings were. In advance of the meeting, Western authorities were quoted in the paper sizing up Khrushchev's intentions. He wanted to size up Kennedy, not just get acquainted with him and his ideas, but also to test his will, define his boiling point. The topic of the second day was Berlin. And here's what Khrushchev said. Sixteen years have passed since World War II. The USSR lost 20 million people in the war, and much of its territory was devastated. Now Germany, the country which unleashed World War II, has again acquired military power and has assumed a predominant position in NATO. Its generals hold high offices in that organization. This constitutes a threat of World War III, which would be even more devastating than World War II. Khrushchev talked about his dead son who has who had died in the Second World War, and Kennedy retorted that his brother had died in the Second World War. For a brief period, they exchanged boasts about the commitment each country had made during the Second World War. Khrushchev, of course, had the ultimate trump card in that, in that front because that so many more Soviets had died in World War II than Americans. And for that reason, Khrushchev told Kennedy, Moscow needed to move quickly because this— rearmament of the Germans it's it's uh the west german association with nato uh made moscow nervous the idea of the german unification which the west was pushing was unrealistic it wasn't going to happen just on its own and the soviets felt like they needed to act to protect themselves against a possibly hostile germany as the tip of the spear of the western powers uh, and so that it was going to basically take advantage of or not advantage of but uh, but um Act Based on the way things were, which is basically that two German states existed. Khrushchev told Kennedy that it was his preference to reach an agreement personally with Kennedy on a war-ending treaty that would alter Berlin's status as a bifurcated city. If that wasn't possible, though, he was going to act alone, which would mean an end to the post-war commitment to boundaries. Western Berlin would become a free city where U.S. troops would remain but coexist with Soviet troops. Kennedy said one side couldn't simply declare Berlin to be free, that the U.S. position in West Berlin was won by war, and that the arrangement was based on an agreement. And if the U.S. tore up that agreement, it would not only break their contract with West Berlin, but it would send a far larger signal. Here's Kennedy. If we, if we were expelled from that area and if we accepted the loss of our rights, no one would have any confidence in U.S. commitments and pledges. U.S. national security is involved in this matter because if we were to accept the Soviet proposals, U.S. commitments would be regarded as mere scraps of paper. Western Europe is vital to our national security, and we are—we have supported it in two wars, Kennedy continued. If we were to leave West Berlin, Europe would be abandoned as well. So when we are talking about West Berlin, we are also talking about West Europe. At this point, Khrushchev's face reddened like the beats they had had at lunch in the Borscht. He interrupted Kennedy. He asked why Kennedy didn't want peace. He wanted He waved his arm. He produced words from his mouth like ice cubes from the drink machine at the subway. The U.S. is unwilling to normalize the situation in the most dangerous spot in the world, he thundered. The USSR wants to perform an operation on this sore spot to eliminate this thorn, this ulcer, again with the metaphors, without prejudicing the interests of any side, but rather to the satisfaction of all peoples in the world. So what Kennedy read this was is that while Khrushchev was saying he wanted a peace treaty with all of Germany, what Kennedy knew the effect of it would be is to bring Eastern Europe and Eastern Berlin and all of Berlin under Soviet domination or dominion, I should say. Khrushchev said that the logic of the U.S. needing to protect its interests in Berlin cannot be understood and the USSR cannot accept it. He told the president he was sorry, but that, quote, no force in the world would stop Moscow from moving forward. Khrushchev then declared the USSR will sign a peace treaty and the sovereignty of the German Democratic Republic will be observed. Any violation of that sovereignty will be regarded by the USSR as an open act of aggression with all of its attendant consequences. Khrushchev was threatening war if the U.S. asserted its claim should continue for Western Berlin. If if the U.S. should start a war with Berlin, so be it, he said. This is what the Pentagon has been wanting. If there is any madman who wants war, he should be put in a straitjacket. Khrushchev, by the end of this tirade, had used the word war three times. Kennedy's team was stunned. The threat of war was just not thrown around willy-nilly like that in diplomatic discussions. Boy, that escalated quickly. So the two days of talks were looking like they were going to be ending on a very sour note. And so Kennedy took a stab one more time at a positive outcome. He asked Khrushchev for one more meeting. This would be the post-lunch meeting on the second day. And Kennedy asked that there be no, interp- no one other than the interpreters. I can't leave here without giving it one more try, Kennedy told an aide. The aides were trying to hustle him out of town because he had a schedule to keep. And he said, we're not going on time. I'm not going to leave until I know more. So Kennedy started to ask questions. Did Khrushchev in his proposal want U.S. military forces in Berlin to remain along with free uh, access to the city? Yes, for six months, responded Khrushchev, and then the forces would have to be withdrawn. So essentially the Russians were saying leave or there will be a conflict. Khrushchev said his decision on Berlin was irrevocable and firm. Kennedy responded with a famous line, if that's true, it's going to be a cold winter. Khrushchev later recalled that Kennedy, after this hastily called meeting at the end of the second day quote looked not only anxious but deeply upset, looking at him, I couldn't help feel sorry and a little bit upset myself. I hadn't meant to upset him. I would have liked very much for us to part in a different mood, but there was nothing I could do to help him, and one human being and as one human being to another, I felt bad about his disappointment. Politics is a merciless business. Khrushchev concluded. This is a passage from uh, Ben Bradley's Conversations with Kennedy. All jocularity disappeared at the third Kennedy-Khrushchev session, requested by the president to nail down the Soviet position on Berlin. This was the nutcutter, Kennedy said more than once later. The president told Khrushchev it was not so much the Soviet determination to sign a separate peace treaty with East Germany that bothered him, as it was the Soviet interpretation that such a treaty would make West Berlin irrevocably East German. That was not acceptable to the United States. Acceptable or not, Khrushchev thundered back. It was going to happen in December, six months later. If the U.S. wants to go to war, Khrushchev said, that's your business. But you must understand that force will be met with force. In their talks, Kennedy told Scotty Reston, the New York Times columnist, the chairman had been rude, savage. At times, he'd seemed about to lunge at him. In discussing everything, his manner was vicious and sneering. I never met a man like him, Kennedy told Time magazine's Hugh Sidey. I talked about how a nuclear exchange would kill 70 million people in 10 minutes, and he just looked at me as if to say, so what? After the meetings broke up, the premier of the Soviet Union said that talks with President Kennedy represented, quote, a very good beginning towards improving relations with the new, with the new United States administration. That was diplomatic niceties, of course, from the man who had bullied the U.S. president and who felt pretty good about it. Those who had worked so hard to brief Kennedy ahead of the summit were mostly disappointed because – Particularly the members of the Ambassador Llewellyn Thompson's staff, he was, the, he was the ambassador to Moscow, and basically he was so upset because most of their advice had been ignored. One of the diplomatic staff, Kempton Jenkins, would reflect later that it had been, quote, the old golden opportunity for Kennedy to be charming, to have Jackie charm Khrushchev, and then have Kennedy come in and say, No, look, I want to say this perfectly straight. Get your bloody hands off Berlin or we'll destroy you. Those were terms Khrushchev would have understood. In the years that followed, the then Vienna-based U.S. diplomat William Lloyd Stearman would teach students about the summit's lessons in a lecture he called Little Boy Blue Meets Al Capone. He thought the title captured the naive and almost apologetic approach Kennedy had followed in the face of Khrushchev's brutal assaults. Stearman would further argue that it was the Bay of Pigs that had created a condition where Khrushchev thought at the uh, summit that, quote, Kennedy was now his pigeon. Kennedy's error was in allowing, or so the diplomats working for the United States thought, was allowing Khrushchev to draw him into a debate over ideology. We addressed this a little bit before, and it has the comparison to Nixon and Mao. After debating in the campaigns, both against Humphrey and Nixon, Kennedy thought he could do pretty well. He was pretty confident that he had this special ability uh, and that um, he could kind of handle any uh, verbal cut and thrust. This is not un- not unlike President Trump's sense of confidence uh, that he took with him into his meetings with both Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin. Before leaving, the president um, met with Scotty Reston. The point was to get across to Americans reading the New York Times how serious things were. Um, Reston had, at this point, won two Pulitzer Prizes. Um, and so uh, he was he was basically the – not just the dean of the foreign policy press corps, but he was the journalist basically <laughs> uh, in American press at the time. Yes, there were the Alsop brothers and others. But Scotty Reston, this was really his and, – and Hugh Sidney for that matter. I mean there were big guns, but Scotty Reston was the biggest of them all. Anyway, they had a conversation. Kennedy debriefed him. The ground rules were that he wouldn't quote the president or mention that they had had a private meeting. Uh, Going into the Vienna Summit, Reston had pretty high expectations for the way things would turn out. Uh, he'd put a lot of meeting, uh, a lot of, sorry, a lot of weight on the fact that Kennedy—and this is something I didn't talk about when Kennedy landed in Paris—but Kennedy had met with De Gaulle, the French president, and De Gaulle, uh, the great hero of World War II, had treated the younger Kennedy as a as an equal, and that had bucked Kennedy up more, even so, than the rave reviews of his wife. Reston described that meeting or that those exchanges and that time spent with De Gaulle as, quote, a tonic. Kennedy was visibly buoyed up when he arrived in Vienna, and he went into the Khrushchev talks not only with revived spirits, but with a wider perspective. And that was important going into this meeting, wrote Reston, because going into it, it had been an opportunity to mend what Reston had identified as, quote, a flaw in Kennedy's administration to date. The first three months had been a kind of on-the-job training for the president, and he has seemed to give equal weight to a whole grab bag of policies. Thus, Laos and Angola have seemed for the moment as important as unity of the Western alliance. Castro as important as the whole good neighbor policy, the minimum wage as important as maximum security, the moon as important as the cockeyed world. Ever since Cuba, Kennedy has been searching for a way to sort things out, to reduce complexity to identity, to divide the dependable from the capricious, to separate the things that pass away from the things that endure. So that was going in, and coming out, Reston, sitting with the president, realized that it had been a botch. How was it, asked Reston. Worst thing of my life, Kennedy said. He savaged me. Reston jotted in his notebook, not the usual—3, 1. Reston jotted in his notebook, not the usual bullshit. There is a look a man has when he has to tell the truth. I've got two problems, Kennedy told Rustin, first, to figure out why he did it and in such a hostile way, and second, to figure out what we can do about it. Kennedy told Rustin that because of the Bay of Pigs, Khrushchev, quote, thought that anyone who was so young and inexperienced as to get into that mess could be taken, and anyone who got into it and didn't see it through had no guts, and he just beat the hell out of me. I've got a terrible problem. If he thinks I'm inexperienced and have no guts, until we remove those ideas, we won't get anywhere with him, so we have to act. We have to act. Well, what does that mean? There it is, though. We have to act. So the conditions in the summit, the feeling beaten by Khrushchev, create the conditions for actions to come. So imagine it had gone differently. Less pressure on the president to act, both for the notion of sort of international prestige, but also to get in the head of Khrushchev, which has been so influenced by the time the two men spent together. So, what does it mean? What does that act mean? Or does it mean overreact? Well, it might mean that. Kennedy, in his recap in the meeting to the public, lied, as all presidents do, about what happened. I will tell you now that it was a very sober two days. There was no discourtesy, no loss of tempers, no threats or ultimatums by either side. No advantage or concession was either gained or given. No major decision was either planned or taken. No threats or ultimatums? Well, of course, there had been. No discourtesy? Well, there had been. Reston's piece conveyed of what's some of what Kennedy had told him, but it also treated its source very favorably. So while Kennedy's aides were fretting, their hands wringing, their scotch glasses drained, and drained again, Kennedy was fretting himself. Here's how Reston put the thing in his final paragraph that American readers would consume. President Kennedy, if not pleased, has had his first major experience in Cold War diplomacy and has come out of it very well. He did not expect much, and he did not get much. But he went away from here more experienced, and he now rates more highly in the estimation of the men who watch these exchanges than he has at any time since he entered the White House. Poppycock! Kennedy stopped over in London to see Prime Minister Macmillan. He was a bomb, the prime minister was, after Vienna. Kennedy described Khrushchev to Macmillan as a barbarian, and he found some comfort, the president did, in Macmillan's support for opposing Khrushchev and the threat to Berlin, which he said he would help the Americans do with, quote, all the force at their command. Adding to the unsettled tenor of the times while Kennedy was in London, a pacifist tried to throw himself under the U.S. president's car. No Polaris the pacifist shouted, referring to the, uh, to the British nuclear submarine that had been helped uh, developed with US help. Flying back from Vienna, Kennedy was a bit of a mess. Looking at his briefing papers with his aides, Kennedy called in his secretary, Evelyn Lincoln. Lincoln's secretary was named Kennedy. that he wanted to get to, he told her he wanted to get some rest and to deal with the papers that he had arrayed before him. As she worked and tidied up his work, She came upon a slip of paper on which Kennedy had scrawled these two lines. I know there is a God, and I see a storm coming. If he has a place for me, I believe I am ready. Those lines were from Lincoln. Upon landing in Washington, the president went to see his brother. Tears were running down the president's cheeks after a while in their conversation, produced by a mixture of the stress he was feeling and the decision ahead. Bobby would later recall that he had never seen my brother cry before about something like this. I was up in my bedroom with him, and he looked at me and said, Bobby, if nuclear, if a nuclear exchange comes, it doesn't matter about us. We've had a good life. We're adults. We bring these things on ourselves. The thought, though, of women and children perishing in a nuclear exchange, I just can't adjust to that. So that gives you a st- set a, a sign of the stakes, and obviously is uh, somewhat somewhat inconsistent with the paragraph at the end of the "Scotty, rest in peace." Upon returning, Kennedy spoke uh, to the public, and he also met with congressional leaders and basically explained to both of them that America was facing a crisis over Berlin. What he told the congressional leaders, though, was that provocation through harsh language was not the way to go. So he wanted to be restrained, but at the same time he needed to convince Khrushchev that reckless action could lead to a nuclear war. Well, how did he? How does he do that? How does he convince him? This is these are the two balancing, or this is the balancing act Kennedy had to engage in after he returned. It was basically the same concept of miscalculation—that um, word that uh, Khrushchev had not liked—in the president's address from the Oval Office on the sixth of June. He had said the Soviets and ourselves give wholly different meanings to the same words, war, peace, democracy, and popular will. We have wholly different views of right and wrong. He urged Moscow uh, to understand that they owed, quote, it all to all of mankind to make every possible effort to avoid war. For the facts of the matter are that the Soviets and ourselves give wholly different meanings to the same words, war, peace, democracy, and popular will. We have wholly different views of right and wrong, of what is an internal affair and what is aggression. And above all, we have wholly different concepts of where the world is and where it is going. Kennedy, for his point, was carrying around his own copy of the transcripts, but not so delighted about it. and He certainly wasn't sending them out for distribution. Kennedy thought about the meeting constantly, wrote Ben Bradley, and here continue more from Bradley and conversations with Kennedy. For weeks after he returned, he talked about little little else, and he carried excerpts from the official translation of his talks with Khrushchev around with him wherever he went and read chunks of them to me several times. What's amazing about how this turned out is how much of it had been foreshadowed by the criticisms before he even went on the trip. Senator William Fulbright said that there was great nervousness about the young president going to see Khrushchev. Uh, A Jacksonville businessman was quoted in the paper saying, you don't negotiate with somebody who has just given you a beating, meaning from the Bay of Pigs. Another person quoted in the piece said Khrushchev will kick him around the block. The New Yorker's columnist, Richard Revere, wrote that, quote, Mr. Khrushchev may not see in our young president quite all that Theodore Sorensen sees in him. Theodore Sorensen being... Uh, Kennedy's famous speechwriter and friend. From Madrid, Ambassador Anthony Biddle cabled, There is worry here, which, reduced to simple terms, is that somehow the wily and corrupt old Soviet leader may get some advantage at Vienna from meeting with the youthful president of idealistic young America. A Newsweek correspondent reported that diplomats in Western Europe thought the meeting would, quote, merely serve to enhance Khrushchev's prestige and that Khrushchev is unlikely to worry very much about American warnings. And on and on and on it went. Warnings before the trip that it would end up exactly as it did. Khrushchev, building on his feeling of uh, success, returned to Moscow and said a peace treaty with Germany cannot be postponed any longer. Kennedy responded on June 25th with a press conference. If war breaks out, he said, it will have been started in Moscow and not in Berlin. Only the Soviet government can use the Berlin frontier as a pretext for war. In those announcements, Kennedy asked Congress to approve the authorization of of a significant increase in Pentagon spending. He called up the reserves, tripled uh, draft calls, raised the ceiling for combat troops, and reconditioned planes and ships that had been uh, stored. So the Kennedy administration was uh, split between the hardliners on Berlin and the slobs, the softliners on Berlin. Leading the hardliners was former Secretary of State Dean Acheson, um, and Acheson had been quite a critic of Kennedy's after the Bay of Pigs. But Kennedy turned to him for advice, and so Acheson uh, basically just uh, said that he would give him a memo on what to do in Berlin. He argued that the cost of inaction was gargantuan, uh, and that it was it was not just specific inaction, but that action had to be taken to counter uh, the perception that Khrushchev had that he could do anything. Um, Asherson believed that the Kennedy administration was in the most incredibly perilous point because Khrushchev doubted the U.S. was willing to go, you know, all the way to the brink, which is to say, to use nuclear uh, weapons, and that he might keep testing. Um, Kennedy, And so Acheson was essentially arguing that nuclear weapons shouldn't be looked upon as the last resort um, but that they should be a part of a forward-leaning policy to push back Khrushchev because if Khrushchev thought he could make attempts, then that would put the US even more back on its heels. It would then have to really uh, react and that would lead the tit-for-tat that would actually lead to nuclear confrontation. So Acheson was, was basically saying, punch back hard now, be extremely militant, threaten nuclear war essentially, uh, to reestablish the equilibrium between the two countries. This, of course, freaked out the slobs, the softliners on Berlin. Um, and uh, but but and Kennedy had to pick between these two. He had a kind of Atchison view because he felt that the State Department had been slow and their decision making process was like, as he said, a bowl of jelly. Um, and so he he it wasn't um, it wasn't that he was all the way for Atchison, but he liked the kind of um, force of it, and also it, it um, matched up with his own feelings about having to recalibrate after the how poorly things had gone in Vienna. Here's more from Acheson. If we are not prepared to go all the way, we should not start. Once having started, backing down would be devastating. If we are not prepared to take all the risks, then we had better begin by attempting to mitigate the eventual disastrous results of our failure to fulfill our commitments. And behind all of this is the view on Acheson's part that basically that once you show a very strong posture towards Khrushchev that he would back down. Time magazine during this period wrote, "There is a wide and spreading feeling that the administration has not yet provided ample leadership in guiding the U.S. along the dangerous paths of the Cold War." It called on Kennedy to be unhesitate to act unhesitatingly and with boldness. And here are the first three paragraphs of Atchison's report on Berlin. Make it pretty clear about what he thought saw the stakes were in this situation. The issue over Berlin, which Khrushchev is now moving towards a crisis to take place, so he says, towards the end of 1961, is far more than an issue over the city. It is the broader and deeper than even it is broader and deeper even than the German question as a whole. It has become an issue of resolution between the United States and the USSR, the outcome of which will go far to determine the confidence of Europe, indeed the world, in the United States. It is not too much to say that the whole position of the United States is in the balance. Until this conflict of wills is resolved, an attempt to solve the Berlin issue by negotiation is worse than a waste of time and energy. It is dangerous. It is so because what can be accomplished by negotiation depends on the state of mind of Khrushchev and his colleagues. At present, Khrushchev has demonstrated that he believes he will prevail because the United States and its allies will not do what is necessary to stop him. He cannot be persuaded by eloquence or logic or cajoled by friendliness. As former British ambassador to Moscow Sir William Hayter has written, the only way of changing Russian purpose is to demonstrate what they want to do is not possible. Atchison's hope was to shift Khrushchev's thinking by convincing him that Kennedy's response to any test on Berlin would be so violent and firm that Khrushchev just wouldn't even risk trying him. One final point on the on the hardliners versus the slobs. In the slob camp was, um, which is to say the slowliners on Berlin, was the secretary of defense, McNamara, which is kind of interesting when you think about it today, when you think of the secretary of defense being the hawk and the diplomat at the State Department being in, in the, just in the, the slotting technique we used uh, for these kinds of positions. While this is all going on, the fleeing of East Germans to West Berlin continues. So as Kennedy figured, thought through all of this, um, Dean Etchison wrote his former boss, President Truman, a note and said somehow he – a note worrying about Kennedy and his lack of action. He's frustrated with him. And frustrated him for not pushing back against Khrushchev, and so Acheson wrote this to Truman. Somehow, he, meaning Kennedy, does succeed in being a president, but only in the appearance of one. Oh, that's tough. So while all this is going on, while the while the hardliners and the slobs are trying to figure it out, they're leaving East Berlin by the bucketful. There's a German word for it: Tarschel, Tarshal Spanek, the fear of the door closing before you can pass through it, which is really just a perfectly apt description. And so uh, they're rushing out of East German to, uh, East Berlin to West Berlin, which puts pressures on um, the Soviets and the German Democratic Republic. And so East Germany's Communist Party leader, first secretary, Walter Ulbricht, uh, on August 13, puts up the wire and essentially creates the wall. Four days later, uh, after the 13th, the wall is up. The construction of the wall is the physical, concrete representation of the struggle between the United States and the Soviet Union. But it was a better—it was better than what Kennedy had thought might happen. Um, a wall, he said, is a hell of a lot better than a war. Essentially, though, um, it obviously. Affirmed a st- stronger position in Berlin than the one that had existed before, which is that both sides would work together and try to bring a unified peace. It hadn't gone all the way to war, and so this was a bit of a uh, a bit of a relief from where things were heading, and it kind of let some of the air out for Khrushchev. So after August, the, the Soviets. Uh, pick up their missile testing uh, significantly, which escalates thing things a little bit more. Uh, and there's a lot of back and forth on that. But essentially, by October, when Khrushchev speaks to the Communist Party Congress, he declares the Western powers are showing some understanding of the situation and are inclined to seek a solution to the German problem and the issue of West Berlin. And he concluded, if that is so, we shall not insist on signing a peace treaty. Absolutely. Before December 31st, 1961. So the, the the issue of Berlin, which looked headed for a confrontation, was resolved for the moment. The wall and Khrushchev's read of Kennedy, which was that he wasn't going to sit still uh, uh, against a, an actual full confrontation on the question of West Berlin, caused him to withdraw, at least specifically on the question of Berlin for the moment, of course— there were those extra missile tests in the summer, or sorry, in the fall of 1961, um, and there would be, uh, which he felt he could do because of his sense of Kennedy's weakness. And of course, then there would be more dire ripples from the pebbles in Vienna. The two leaders would face off again over Soviet missiles in Cuba. The Soviet leader convinced that after Vienna, Kennedy could be pushed around. That would almost come to the brink. But even more than the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was one more confrontation between capitalism and communism to come that people have linked to this question of credibility after the meeting in Vienna. And I'll let William Manchester tee up the biggest possible effort to Fix and rebuild American credibility in the struggle between capitalism and communism, the global struggle between capitalism and communism. And here's Manchester. Later, the real price paid began to emerge. Given the attitude of Moscow, the Berlin question, and the resumption of nuclear testing, Arthur Schlesinger would write – this is Arthur Schlesinger, uh, Kennedy's aide and former historian – Quote, the president unquestionably felt that an American retreat in Asia might upset the whole world balance. Kennedy believed that there he must provide his adversaries with additional proof of fearlessness and backbone. To James Reston, he observed that the only place where communists were challenging the West in a shooting war was in Indochina. So, quote, now we have a problem in trying to make our power credible, and Vietnam looks like the place. That's it for this edition of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Daniel Hewitt. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson took all of Brian's good work and churned through it and walked me through all three of these long episodes, was there at every step of the way, Thanks to the whole crew at CBS Radio who hooked me up at the studio to record in. And thanks to all of you out there for listening to these three episodes of Kennedy and Khrushchev. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a few weeks with the next edition of Whistle Stop.